Well, good morning, Heart of the Canyons. You can be seated. It's good to have you this morning. It is. Um, how many of you are San Francisco fans? I'm glad there's one of you here. <laughs> I know we got some Green Bay f- fans in the room. I know two of them over here. So you guys, please stay in different sections, please. No conflict in the room over a football game, but it's uh, it's getting close. You, I tell people all the time, you may not realize it, but when you've been doing this as many years as I have, you understand there are certain trends and things in the church, and some of the lost Sundays of the year have to do with football games. Can you believe that? So whatever... Whoever, whatever, if they stayed home today to root for their team, I hope they lose. <laughs> so I guess they'll both lose. How's that? Because there's probably Green Bay Packer fans. Isn't there other, two other teams playing today too? Who, who's the other teams? Tennessee Titans and the Chiefs. There you go. Yeah. You can tell I'm keeping up with things. So football season, college football season's over, so I'm pretty much done. But uh, anyway... It's good to be here this morning. Welcome to Hardy Kansas. If you're a guest with us, we are so thrilled to have you. We'd love to meet you. I'd love to meet you. I generally hang around here or back there somewhere, and I'd love to meet you if I haven't had a chance to do that, and uh, we'd love to do that. Encourage you any way we can. We're just glad you're here. Glad you've come to Hardy Kansas. Well, we're in John 3 today, so if you'll have a Bible, you can turn it there. If not, you're going to see this text are on your outline. And they'll be up here on the screen, and uh, we're going to look at this together this morning. Um, I, I guess I should apologize up front uh, because I really don't have time to do justice to this passage of Scripture this morning. It's probably one of the premier passages of Scripture uh, contained in it. It's probably the most known verse in all of the Bible, all the world, probably. Uh, and that would be which? John three, sixteen. Okay, if you haven't watched the football game Maybe you should. I understand they quit letting them do that. So I just stand up and start screaming it real loud. So, uh, But uh, I wanna, what I want to do is give you a good overview of this text of Scripture. We're really just going to cover the first 21 verses today um, because that's really all I have time to do. And uh, I'll, if I get time, if I have time, I'll read the rest of the text so we can read the whole chapter together. And so um, I'm going to kind of do a, a run through this morning. Uh, give you some highlights. My hopes are that uh, as I've walked through the text over the last couple of weeks getting ready for today, I can lead you in an overview or uh, kind of a walkthrough or flyover of the text of Scripture so that you can do a walkthrough on your own. Now, we looked at different ways for us to read the Bible together as a church this year, and we thought about reading, um, doing a deal where we all read through, all the way through the Bible in a year. How many of you have ever attempted to do that? How many of you have actually succeeded? I see those two hands. Okay, we do well until we get to the begats, right? I mean, you do well until you get to the so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and they had three sons, and they begat so-and-so. And it's a great passage of Scripture, and, but unless you're pretty disciplined, you're probably not going to take the time to really look at that and realize that these represent the lineage of Christ. So it's an amazing thing to look at, it really is, but most of us aren't going to do that. So we decided to do something, at least at the beginning of the year, a little different, and that was we were going to teach through this book of the Bible, and we're going to kind of overview these chapters. We're going to kind of give you highlights that sort of whet your appetite, and then you need to go home and 
You need to read it, okay? This week will be John 3. So starting this afternoon, sometime this afternoon, this evening, when you go to bed, just pick up your Bible and just read John chapter 3, okay? Um, read John chapter 3. If you did that every day for the coming week, you'd have an overview and understanding of John chapter 3 is what you'd have. It's sort of a walkthrough. I think when you just do a read through the Bible real quick, you don't remember 99% of the things you read. So if we read John chapter 3 every day, Okay. Now, for those of you who are studious, you could actually do more than that. You could actually slow down and study a little bit. In other words, when you're reading through this book and you see the word born again, go look up what that means. There's implications of that. There are other places in the Bible where you're going to find implications of that. And you'll do that with uh, uh, different types of tools that I've, uh, I, I use. I use a tool called blueletterbible.org. It's Blue Letter Bible. And it's a great little tool. Uh, it's simple. Um, when you type in the verse, if you John 3, John 3 is going to come up, and there's a little tag on the side that says tools. Click that thing called tools. You'll have a, a lexical study, which means you can actually study the Greek language. You don't have to memorize it, but you can say, okay, is that, that's what this word means in the Greek language. gives you some interesting things like verb tenses and which you don't really care about, but it doesn't matter in interpretation of Scripture. But you can do that. There's, uh, there's uh, commentaries. You click on the little set of commentaries, you're going to see various. Some of them are audible. You get, uh, there are audio commentaries. You could actually listen to these going to work. They kind of give you some description. Some of them are sermons preached by different pastors, things of that nature. And then they have some written commentaries. I would encourage you to look at some of those written commentaries uh, they're very interesting. You'll have commentaries like uh, Matthew Henry commentaries. You'll have uh, some other written things for you that you can read there. Uh, they have Bible dictionaries. How many of you know that a Bible dictionary is different than a worldly dictionary? Okay. Because you want to get back to what the Bible meant when it used this term, not what modern definitions mean. One of the ways cults succeed in our world, false teachings succeed in our world, is they take biblical terms and they twist the definition. You think you're reading the same thing, but you're not because they use those words and mean completely different than the original definition. So you can get a Bible dictionary, go back and look at those things. So take a night and do that. Shut your TV off. There's nothing on there right now anyways. As soon as football's over, it's over, right? Uh, and so there's nothing on there. Uh, I guarantee it's better than some of these shows you're going to watch. It, they, those commentate, but they commentate your brain, you know, uh, but uh, take some time to do that. Uh, one of the things you can do when you're going through here is uh, pick out a verse that just really speaks to your heart and memorize it. That's a novel idea, isn't it? Doesn't the Bible say, thy word, if I hidden in my heart, that might, might not sin against God? You know why a lot of people are Christians sin in the world today? is because we don't have the word of God memorized in our minds. So when we're confronted with sin, we're trying to argue with Satan, and you're going to lose that battle. When Jesus was tempted, what did he do? He quoted scripture. Well, now if Jesus quotes scripture to defeat the devil, who you and I, who, who do we think we are to argue with him? And so when you read through John 3, there's a pretty easy one there, John 3.16, that would be pretty good. But there are others in that passage of scripture. Uh, there are other passages of scripture in there. And something that just sort of speaks to your heart. Memorize that. And then you're sort of knocking off some of the major things we ask people to do at the Bible. One of the things I try to encourage people to do, in fact, we teach a class called 301 in our, our 201 class. 
We teach a whole section on how to get a grip on the Bible. How many of you have ever heard me talk about this? Okay. 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 I don't, if I ask this next week, you better answer this because I'm fixing to talk about it. Getting a grip on your Bible is a, 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 just a visual where you take your hand and you say there are six things that we can do to better digest the Word of God. Number one, just read it. If you're not reading the Bible, that's a good starting point. Read it. Okay? I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who say to me, I don't believe the Bible. And I say, have you ever read it? Nope. So you, how do you know if you believe it or not? I mean, that's kind of stupid. Somebody else doesn't believe it. You're just quoting them. You might want to figure it out. Okay? So read. Number two, hear. Listen to the Word of God. Do you know the early church didn't have Bibles to read? Nobody had a, very few people had a personal copy of the Bible. If you had a personal copy of the Bible, it was one of two things to be true. You were filthy rich or you were a teacher in the church. Everybody else would come and gather and they would just sit and listen as leaders would read the word of God. One of the things I like to do in my discipline is I open the Bible and then I put an audio version on. I listen and read at the same time because I'm ADD. I'm easily distracted. Okay. And so when I'm looking at it and I'm listening to it at the same time, it's, it's kind of feeding me. And so you can do that. Read, hear, study is what we talked about a minute ago. Pick up some tools. Read, hear, study. Memorize the word. That word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. Doesn't say I would not. It says I might not. But if you do not read the word, the might not is gone and you will. Okay. So read, hear, study, memorize, meditate, which simply means you digest what it says. You know, I tell people all the time, somebody said, you need to meditate. I said, what does that mean? They said, you need to get in touch with your innermost being. I tell people, I've been in there and it's ugly. Okay? That's not the kind of meditation we're talking about. It's letting the scripture absorb your soul. It's what it is. It's taking the word of God that you've memorized, you're reading, and just sort of set it. Here's the difference. When you read the Bible, you're reading it. When you're meditating on it, it is reading you. And the reason a lot of people are bored with the Scripture is because instead of reading, instead of letting it read you, you've begun to read it as though it's some textbook. And it gets awfully boring when you do that. But when you let it read your soul, it begins to minister to your heart. And it's a, the word is a lamp unto feet, to my feet and a light unto my path, and I will hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. So read, hear, study, memorize, meditate. And then the last one would be what? How about apply? Apply the word of God. Here's what I tell you. The greatest problem in the American church today is not the information we get about the Bible. It's the inability or unwillingness we have to apply the word of God to the way we live. If you don't apply the word of God to your life, it really doesn't make any difference. If you're having problems with your marriage, go read what the Bible says about marriage and do it. Now, you need to do it under the power of the Holy Spirit because this is not some self-thing. We're going to talk about that this morning. But you need to do what it says. The Bible tells you to do something. You do it. Okay? It's kind of like, what part of no do you not understand? The other side of it, what part of yes do you not understand? The greatest sin in the church today is not the sins we commit, which are plenty. It's not the sin of commission. It's the sin of omission. It's not doing what God tells us not to do. It's not doing what God tells us to do. Is this making sense to you all? So, it, okay. You guys are not going to be as quiet as the first group, were you? 
because they were just, you need to pray for that first service. No, I'm joking. I think the wind does this. Every time it's a windy day, it gets quiet in the building. I don't know what it is. But uh, anyway, I hope you'll do that. I'm, I'm spending much too, too much time on this because we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. But again, my hope is to sort of whet your appetite this morning and then kind of help you, um, um, kind of help you uh, kind of get into this in a deeper way on your own. And uh, it's important. Um, so why John? Well, we're talking about it. Because we, got to, we want to believe what the Word says, but we don't want to just believe in a sense that we cognitively got in our minds around the meaning of the text. We want to believe it is what we do. Listen to this verse. It's, it's a verse we've been looking at. Uh, Jesus did many other signs. In John chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Stop. If you go to Acts 21, it says he, he did so many things and taught so many things that that it, was, it would be impossible to contain everything Jesus said and did. Isn't that amazing? So we're just getting a small bite of what we're doing. But it's what we need, and here's why. He said, but these things are written, are written so that you may believe, believe what? That Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, Savior, Messiah. Jesus is the word Savior, Messiah, Christ is the word Messiah. So that Jesus, the Savior, is the Messiah, the Son of God. Very important because Jesus is going to allude to himself in a few minutes as the Son of Man. The Bible presents Jesus in two ways, Son of God, Son of Man. Okay, Fully God, fully man. So that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you can just be lazy till you die. No, so that you can have life in his name. You can have life in his name. Believe and live. Believe and live. Now, in John 3, John 3 is sort of interesting because um, in, in the first part of the verse, he sort of, first 21 verse, he kind of gives us something to believe in. Verse 22 and 23, he gives us sort of an attitude to live by, and he's going to talk about that. And then verses 31 through 34, he, can get, he gives you reasons to believe in. It's quite interesting when you look at how he breaks this down. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm not going to take those points. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the three points. We're going to read to the text of Scripture. And I hope you leave here today with a deeper understanding of who you are in Christ. Because if you don't get that down, none of, nothing else is going to matter. If you walk out of here and you're not sure about where you are in relationship to Christ... You're going to walk out of here as an insecure human being. And when you walk out of here insecure, you are vulnerable to all sorts of things. But when you understand who you are in Christ, and you understand the only reason you are who you are in Christ, because what Christ has done for you, then all of a sudden you walk out of here with a deeper level of confidence when you face whatever you're going to face out there in the world is what you're going to do. And so it's important that we understand these things. Um, you know, I grew up in the South, and so one of my favorite comedians was always Jeff Foxworthy. And Jeff Foxworthy's crazy, and his, his, his uh, sort of spiel is, you might be a redneck. You guys remember that? The jokes, you might be a redneck? Let me read some of these to you. I thought they were funny. So you might be a redneck if you ever have ever made change from the offering plate. <laughs> is that a have you ever? I actually saw that happen one time. Guy said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Bring it back here!" And he took some money out. 
He puts, I'm not sure how much he took out, how much he put in. I, he, he was hilarious. I think that's funny. I don't know about you. You might be a redneck if your lifetime goal is to own a firework stand. That's funny. Um, you might be a redneck if you own a home with wheels on it and several cars without. <laughs> Um, you might be a redneck if you think you're an entrepreneur because you have a dirt for sale sign in your front yard. You might be a redneck if the blue book value of your truck goes up and down depending on how much gas you have in it. <laughs> this is not funny to y'all. You know why it's funny to me? is because I'm describing people I know. Me. And... Uh, um, one of them says, you, you might be a redneck if your wife has ever said, can you move this transmission out of the bathtub so I can take a bath? <laughs> you, might be a fa you might be a redneck if your wife can climb a tree faster than your cat can. These are just hilarious. Here's my favorite. I'll give you my favorite. You might be a redneck if you stare at an, an orange juice can because it says concentrate. Is that hilarious? It really is. Sounds like some of the guys in this room. I know. Not your wives, but you. But uh, it's quite interesting. Well, today I want to talk about how you can escape the trap of self-sufficiency. So based on that, I wanted to kind of give you some things. You might be caught in the trap of self-sufficiency if. Now, these aren't funny, okay? If they're funny, you probably need to stop and think a little bit. But a lot of us, if we're honest, are caught in this trap of self-sufficiency. And honestly, our, our relationship with God too often is defined by how well we're doing. Now, I don't mean our fellowship with God. You've got to differentiate between the relationship we have with God and the fellowship we have with God. See, your relationship with God has nothing to do with you doing anything other than fully trusting in what God has done for you in the person work of Jesus Christ. But if we're honest, many times how we're doing defines that relationship. Now, I understand how it affects the fellowship that we have, but it's not a relational thing. And here's what I've also learned in my lifetime. If you're not secure in your relationship with God, you will be all over the place spiritually. But when you know, when you know that God is your father and you know that God has done everything necessary for you to have a relationship with him, there's a security in that that doesn't drive you to do whatever you want to do. It creates in you a desire to do what you ought to do. And there's a completely different issue here. So here's the deal. You might be caught in, if, you might be caught in the trap of self-sufficiency if... You think your natural birth circumstances guarantee your salvation. You know how many people I talk to, and, 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 and I've had people say this so many times. Why are you saved? Well, because I was raised in the church. No. Because my Christians, my parents were Christian. Well, I'm grateful your parents were Christian, but your parents... Or not what determines whether or not you're Christian. Now, you may be raised in a, in, a, in a Christian environment. I hope you're raised by Christians. That's a great gift to you. But there's a difference in being raised by a Christian and being a Christian. Just because you were raised or born in the church or born in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. 
And it's important for you to understand that uh, because relationship, Christ, Christianity is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so if you are one of those who are depending on your heritage to bring you into a relationship with God or your religious background, the church, to bring you into a relationship with God, you're probably a person who is leaning into self-sufficiency a whole lot, number two. Second thing is you might be caught in the the trap of self-sufficiency if you think religious rituals done to you or by you guarantee your salvation. Now, I'm going to be real careful here because I don't want to offend people, but I want you to hear something, okay? God didn't give us rituals. He gave us ordinances. These are pictures of what God has already done in our heart. Nobody in this room is saved because you've been baptized, Because here's what I'll tell you. If you weren't saved before you got in the water, all you did was get wet. Okay? Now, it's not a bad symbol of our faith. In fact, it's an act of obedience. It's something we do in obedience to what God has done in us. But if he hadn't done it in you, I can't do it to you. And no amount of ritual... No amount of religious ritual is going to bring you into a relationship with God. Number three, you you are a person who is caught in the trap of self-sufficiency if you think your self-righteousness is going to get you into heaven. Probably the number one answer I get from people when I ask them the question, if you were to die right now and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? The number one answer to that by most people is because I'm not that bad. Well, you're not that good either. You know, if I went down the Ten Commandments, how many of you would say there's any of them you've not broken? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. If you have kids, you know what that means. Okay? If you have a house, car, I mean, most of you spend more time polishing your car than you do reading your Bible. You shall not make unto me any graven images and bow down and worship that image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, that doesn't mean just using the, it just means you're using God and not really meaning it in serious ways. Okay? I, I heard a guy cussing one time and I said, you know, you need to stop that. He said, well, I don't mean anything by it. I said, that's what vain means. Honor your father and mother. Anybody mess up on that one? Thou shalt not steal. Anybody ever take anything that belong to you? Anybody, thou shalt not kill? Jesus said, if you, if you have hatred in your heart to your brother, you've so much as committed murder. Thou shalt not kill, steal, kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, if you look, look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've so much as committed adultery. Let me tell you what we've got in this room. We, are, we got a bunch of liars and thieves and adulterers sitting right here in the room this morning. If we're honest. And the reality is, if you think that you're good enough to get into heaven, you're going to be awfully disappointed because God's standard for entrance, get this, is perfection. Now, in John 3, Jesus confronts a man, or a man confronts Jesus, comes to have a conversation with Jesus, and he exposes the problem of self-sufficiency or self-righteousness is what he does. And what we're going to learn in the first point basically is this. 
when, when Jesus enters into our life, he tears down any and every illusion of self-accomplishment or spiritual accomplishment. Let's read the text together. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, we're not going to get far. We're going to stop right there because I want you to know who this guy is. Nicodemus is a wonderful man, is what he is. I mean, if, if, if you were to, as a culture, if we were to look at Nicodemus, most of us would probably say, if there's a man in the world that I'd want my children to be like, we would say Nicodemus is one of those guys. Great man. Great man. A Pharisee, which means he not only kept the literal law of Moses, he even honored the oral traditions that were handed down. He worked hard to be a good and righteous man is what he did. He was a Pharisee. He had done so well that not only was a Pharisee, he was recognized as a ruler of the Jews, probably meaning that he was part of the legal organization, was a part of Judaism in that day, sort of the Supreme Court of their day called the, 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 uh, the Sanhedrin. I mean, this guy had, had made accomplishments that were absolutely amazing. Now, we don't know much about his background, but what we do know is that Nicodemus is one of those guys who we would have said, wow, this is a man that everybody in the world would want to be like. And so here's this guy, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and the Bible says this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Nicodemus was watching Jesus, and he says, look, there's something distinguishably different about Jesus. About Jesus. That's interesting. He comes to him by night. Now, there's only one of two reasons Nicodemus would have come by night. Number one, he may have been sent as a delegation from the Pharisees trying to get some answers from Jesus about who he said he was. I mean, he did the same thing with John the Baptist. They were always, they were sort of the protectors. That was their responsibility of Judaism per se. So they might have sent him out there at nighttime under the cover of darkness to, to try to get some answers to Jesus because of who he is. So see, people are starting to follow Jesus. That always made the religious leaders a little bit nervous. Or, and I think this tends to be it. More importantly, I think Nicodemus was really intrigued by Jesus and he comes because he has a lot of questions, but he has to protect his reputation. So he comes at night. Now he recognizes something about Jesus. And then he recognizes he's a great teacher. Now we don't know how much time has lapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. But in that time frame, Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been performing miracles. And he has the attention of Jerusalem. He's got their attention. And Nicodemus says, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do what you do unless God is with him. Now, I don't know if he's really interested in finding out who Jesus did, is or he's interested in finding out how Jesus does what he does so he can get some of that same stuff. Now, I don't know. I don't think that's the case. 
I think he's really interested in who Jesus is. Let me tell you why. Because he shows up again through the Gospels. Shows up in John chapter 7, where the, where the, the, the religious leaders are wanting to arrest Jesus, and, and Nicodemus comes to his defense in John chapter 7. And then, you know where we see Nicodemus again? Anybody have any clues? John 19. John is with a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who he and Nicodemus come and remove Jesus' body from the cross to place it in the tomb. And Nicodemus purchases all the spices and things necessary to wrap the remains of Jesus before they're laid in the tomb. I don't think, I don't know why he came. And I'm not sure what happened to him after this. We don't have any records to really tell us anything about this. But Nicodemus was deeply impacted because he saw something in Jesus. Here's the, here's the deal. He saw something in Jesus that he didn't see in himself. Now, more than likely, if Nicodemus was living in our day, he would have got him one of these legal notepads and he would have started writing down questions. Because he was going to see Jesus by night. I don't think he was going to get a lecture so much as he was going to ask questions. But he didn't even get to ask a question because here's what happens. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jesus, Jews. The same came to Jesus that night, and he said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, and no man can do the things you do, lest God is with him. Jesus answered him. In other words, Jesus already knew his questions. Jesus answered him, and he said, truly, truly. Uh, when I grew up as King James, verily, verily. Remember that? Verily, verily. Well, let me tell you what verily, verily means. It means truly, truly. Okay? Truly, truly. And when Jesus says that twice, you need to pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, let me illustrate this way. I read this illustration. I hope I can do it justice. Let's say you're a good builder. I mean, you're, you're a good craftsman. That's what you do. You have this insatiable desire to build a house in which you will eventually live one day. And so you, you spend time and energy and resources. I mean, you use the best skills you have with the best materials you've got. And you work hard for about 20 years. But it's taken about 20 years for Nicodemus to get where he was. And he used the best skills he had. And let's say you build this house and you're getting ready to move in. You're proud of what you've done. You're very proud of what you've done. But you have a friend. And he's not only a master builder, he's an inspector. And so you say, hey, man, you won't believe it. I've built this house. I want you to come and see it. I want you to come and see it before I move in. And the inspector walks in and he looks around for a few minutes. And then he looks at you and says, you ought to tear this thing down and start all over. That's how Nicodemus felt. Because he had spent his whole life. He's probably older in age now. He's accomplished everything that he wanted to accomplish in the religious world. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. And Jesus has the audacity to look at him and say, none of it's any good. You need to start all over.
told the first service this, I'm going to tell you again. One of my goals in this service today is to make you doubt your salvation. Some of you said, oh, no. I want you to doubt it if it's about you. Because, you see, if we're honest this morning and we're really honest, many of us are caught in the trap of thinking, as I said a few minutes ago, that the right relationship we have with God is based on the self-righteousness that we have or religious accomplishment or all those things. And here's what Jesus would say to anyone who's caught in that trap. You need to clear it away and start all over. He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can see the kingdoms of men. You can see religion. But you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's always interesting to me. Nicodemus always wanted to go back to what the flesh did. Jesus wasn't talking here about you just being biologically born again. Jesus knew the impossibility of that. He said, do I enter a second time in my mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, there it is again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is who is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's interesting. Here's what he says. You must be born of water and of Spirit. Now, water is indicative of the flesh. He tells us that in the next word. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Now, obviously, everybody in this room has been born in the flesh, right? Anybody sitting beside you that's not in the flesh right now? If they are, Run. Okay, you've been born in the flesh. That's not bad. In fact, that's what God's going to redeem. He can redeem your flesh. But he doesn't just redeem your flesh by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves us. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, when the spirit of God is infused in the hardness of human flesh, we're born again. Paul would say it this way, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. In Isaiah 6, the scripture says the Israelites had become dull their ears heavy and blind with their eyes. He says he was actually going to do this to Israel. He said he would make their, the people dull. Their ears would be heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's Isaiah chapter 6. You go down into Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, look, there's a coming a time. And I think this is what John is referring to in John chapter 3, because in Ezekiel 36, he says, look, there's going to come a time when here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness. Notice it's his application of holy purity, 
that he applies. It's not me taking a bath. It's what he does. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from, from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And then he says, look, I will give you a new heart. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll put my spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart of stone. Let me ask you a question. What's the condition of your heart? That's the flesh he's looking for. It's not a hard heart. He's looking for a soft heart. A heart of flesh. And then he says, and I'll put my spirit within you. And he says, I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here's what he says. When the Holy Spirit, when God redeems us, when we're born again... God takes out the hard heart that we all have. He puts inside of us a heart of flesh. And then with a heart of flesh, he fills it with his spirit. And most people believe this is exactly what John is referring to when he's talking about these things. That which is born of the flesh of flesh is that which is born of the spirit of spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Now, please hear me. The first thing God has to do for any of us to have an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, he has to tear down any and all illusions of spiritual accomplishment. Nobody in this room is saved because you've done religious things, even if it's in the context of the church. And God had to tear that away. Secondly, not only does he tear down the illusion of spiritual accomplishment, he lifts up the only solution for man's sinfulness. In other words, he, he brings and says, okay, you don't, have a, you don't have a dog in a fight here, Nicodemus. You can't do this. And so God says, look, I've got the only way for you to have this relationship with God. And, and, and it's interesting because it says, Nicodemus said to them, how can these things be? Jesus answered him and said, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? In other words, Nicodemus, have you read your Bible? Have you been paying attention? If you read the Bible, I guarantee you, you should understand real clearly that you don't have, nor have you ever had, the answer to your own spiritual dryness. That is something God and only God can do. It was true throughout the whole Bible. Throughout the Bible, the only reason God had any, any followers in the Old Testament is because he chose them. And Nicodemus should have known that. He said, you're a teacher of Israel? You don't understand these things? Nicodemus, you don't remember the prophecies? You don't remember Isaiah 53? Nicodemus, you don't understand? You're a teacher in Israel and you don't understand? Listen, guys, this is important. Because what happens in your life is you come to a place where you realize that you are not the answer to your problem. You are not the solution to your own problem. The solution is made by Christ and Christ alone. He says, truly, truly, he says it again, I say to you, 
We speak that which we, that which we know and bear, fit, bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony, which is the testimony of the Old Testament, by the way. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he goes on. No one's ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Remember earlier, Son of God? Here he's the Son of Man. The Son of God, Jesus, descended to earth as the Son of Man so that he could reascend to heaven. And guess what he did? When he went, he took the keys with him. And he is the only one who has the keys to, to release us from the prison that we live in in and of ourselves. And then he says these words, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus would know this story. Guaranteed. He would know this story. He would know it. It's actually in Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites have been delivered from the bondage of Egypt. They're still grumbling out in the desert is what they're doing. As God brings them to the edge of the promised land, he's provided everything they need. He's provided food and water. He's provided everything. And guess what they did? They complained. Listen to this. It says in verse 4 of, of, of Numbers chapter 21, it's not on your outline, just listen. It says, from Mount Hor, they went, they set out by the, by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Remember what they were eating? Manna. Guess what they had every day? Manna. Manna today, manna tomorrow. Manna souffle, manna burgers, manna dogs. It just manna, 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 manna. That's all they had. Guess what they did? They complained. That's what they did. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents upon the people. It's pretty tough stuff, isn't it? You're going to grab back your food. I'm going to send snakes on you, buddy. So the Bible says God sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people, die, people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, this is interesting, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. Then everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. If a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent. He would live. Now, can you imagine when word gets out? Okay, Moses says there's a brass serpent on a pole in the middle of the camp. And if you drag yourself over there and just look at that, you'll be healed. Doesn't that sound stupid to you? Can I tell you something? This, this, 
is stupid to a lot of people. This does not make sense. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, Nicodemus, you can try all these things you want to try. But until you recognize and see one day that I will be the one who is lifted up. Because what did he say in the text? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, will have eternal life. You know, the Bible says, the Bible says the word of God to those who perish is foolishness. Doesn't make sense. Nicodemus had to come to the end of himself and realize that he was not his own solution. He was his own problem. When that happens, and we escape the illusion of self-accomplishment and we lift up the only solution for man's sinfulness, what happens is then God in this text reveals God's motivation for his actions. God reveals his motivations for his actions. This is the most known verse in all the Bible, right? Anybody not know this verse? Let's all say it together. You ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Wow. There it is. Why did God do this? What was God's motivation? Can I tell you something what it was not? God didn't need us. I mean, God didn't need me. God's motivation was not something lacking in his heart because his creation wouldn't worship him. God was fine. He's God. He's fine. You get that? Why did he do it? i tell you why he did it. He did it this reason. For God. For God. So loved the world. Let me, let me give it to you in, the, in another translation. It's called this. For God so deeply loved and cherished the world. Wow. Do you like the world? Do you love the world? I'm not talking about the part of it you get enjoyment from. How many of you like politics these days? How many of you like world systems? I don't like it. I don't love it. For God so loved the world, so deeply loved and cherished the world, that he gave his only begotten son, his unique son, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that he gave himself 
See, the Israelites were sons of God through choice. God chose Abraham. You and I are children of God through redemption, but only Jesus was the begotten son of God. Nobody else has ever been the begotten son of God, ever. And Jesus came as the only son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son that whoever, that means you, whoever what? Believes in him, trusts in him, relies upon him. Whoever believes in him would not perish. In other words, you won't go to hell. But you'll be given eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Notice it says, might be saved. It didn't say everybody would be saved. It says he might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Stop there just a minute. Please hear me. The only mechanism that allows you to escape condemnation is belief in Jesus. That's it. And if you don't believe, it's not as though condemnation is coming. According to the scripture, you're already condemned. Why? Because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. This is the judgment that light has come into the world And people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. You know why people won't come into the light? They don't want to be exposed. It's amazing how humans hide a bunch of stuff, don't we? Did you know that's what Adam did? What was the first thing Adam did when he sinned? He hid. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now please hear this. When you come to God in the light, what he has to do, and he had to do this for Nicodemus, he had to expose to Nicodemus the condition of his real heart to get him to escape the illusion of his own spiritual accomplishment and realized that the only way he could have a relationship with God was through Jesus Christ. And the reason Jesus did this is because he loved him. So why are you going to heaven? I went to church today. Well, I'm glad you're here. Now, listen, the only reason any one of us will be privileged to see the kingdom of God is because God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. You really trusted in Christ and Christ alone? 
Seriously. Have you really trusted in Christ Christ again? If God said to you right now, if you walked up and said, okay, God, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. Would God say to you, tear it down? You must be born again. And only God, the Holy Spirit, can breathe life into your dead soul. And here's when he does it. Here's when he does it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in trust in and relies fully upon him nothing else just him would not perish but have everlasting life please hear me folks if you stand before God one day and you will and if somehow God were to say to you why should I let you into my heaven and anything in your answer involves you, you won't be there. You won't be there. And my heart breaks. Because God says so many times, I mean, he wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, land of the prophets. Would that I could gather you unto myself as a hen gathers her chicks. But you wanted everything to do with you and nothing to do with me. And all God says is, look, you just come and say, God, I'm broken. I'm messed up. And I cannot fix myself. cross and I say it's all here it's all here and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation you cannot go to heaven because you were raised in a Christian home. You will not go to heaven because you've done sort of religious rituals. You will not go to heaven because your own good works. You'll go to heaven for one reason and one reason alone. That's because God has done everything necessary for you to have a relationship with him. And the only response you have is to by faith accept free gift of God that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. You need to quit striving and just rest in Jesus Christ. Bow your heads. God convicted my heart this week that recently I've not been asking you for commitment. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, some of you need to give your life to Jesus today. 
you, you've come to church, you've tried to be religious, you think you're doing pretty good, and you need to come this morning, and you need to just get honest and say, God, I don't bring anything to the game except I, by faith I just trust you. And you need to get saved. You need to be born again. Now, some of you have been born again. It's amazing how quickly we pick it back up. See, every day of my life, I'm reminded that the only reason I have a relationship with Jesus is because of what Jesus did for me. And out of that relationship, I want to love him. I want to honor him. But it comes because we trust in him. Have you done so? Have you fully trusted in him? If you've not, today, I just want to invite you to do this. In a time of commitment, I want you to just say these words to God. Just say these words to God. God, today, I've come to the end of myself. And I know that I don't deserve heaven. But I know you love me. And I know you died on a cross so I could have life. And right now, Jesus... I set aside all my religion. I set aside all of my stuff. And I simply trust in you. In you alone. And right now, I want to be born again. I accept you. I believe in you. And I trust you with my whole heart. Father, you know every person in this room. God, help us to rest in the salvation that we have. Not rest with it, but rest in it. God, I pray this morning that we would simply trust in Jesus so that we can be born again. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your provision. And God, in these last few moments of this service, I pray your Holy Spirit salvation so real and we would understand that we are children